to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. It's Monday, so we've got a weekend's worth of news to catch up on, and there's a bunch of it. We've got elections in Brazil going to a runoff. We've got the ceasefire in Yemen expiring. Uh, We've got OPEC mulling production cuts and members of the U.S. Congress calling for Saudi Arabia to see some consequences for it. We have intense fighting still underway in Ukraine and in Russia now as of last week, Uh, although I guess the Russian parliament is also still drafting up the laws that will make that change final in Russia. We've got an animal welfare case before the Supreme Court that could affect life in the U.S. far beyond the realm of agriculture. We've got protests still underway in Iran. Uh, We've got news still coming in about what Hurricane Ian has done in Florida and the Carolinas. Uh, There's a lot to get into, John. There is a lot. And I just saw in the New York Post that Sasheen Littlefeather died. Do you remember her? Mm -hmm, I do. She was just in the news again a couple of months ago because it was the, you know, something 40th, 50th anniversary, I guess, 50th anniversary of her going up on stage at the Oscars to refuse Marlon Brando's uh, Oscar. And, you know, she was 75 years old. The Academy had just apologized to her, I think, on that anniversary for their treatment of her. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. I got to say. Uh, I don't know that we're going to talk a ton about uh, Hurricane Ian today, but I'm surprised that the number, the the official death toll is still all over the place. I mean, they yeah. are definitely, it's not necessarily because they're still looking for people. They are still looking for people in the wreckage, mostly in, in Lee County. And there are beginning to be questions about the timing of evacuation orders. Uh, if evacuation orders for Lee County in particular had been made mandatory sooner, would fewer people have lost their lives uh, or their health in this? You know, the, these are questions that are going to have to be answered by Florida officials. But You know, CNN has uh, the official count in Florida of the dead at 76, uh, with four in North Carolina. NBC has 83 dead in Florida. The Hill says near 70. Uh, So, I mean, I think that speaks to the chaos that still exists there in the aftermath of this storm, that there's not even a clear figure on on the number of the dead, uh, you know, aside from the, the fact that they're still looking. It is surprising. And, you know, another thing, too, is this controversy, perhaps it's even a manufactured controversy, about um, Vice President Harris saying that uh, aid to Florida um, has to be done with equity. She didn't explain what she meant by that. Oh, yeah. Uh, And then the head of FEMA today coming out and saying, no, we're going to help every community in Florida. So I, I didn't. I didn't fully understand, Michelle, whether she was kind of pulling a Donald Trump that aid will go to areas that voted Democratic or if she just misspoke or no. if we're perhaps misunderstanding her. I have to say I only saw that headline. Right. So I but I what I suspect happened is that she sort of tried to jam in uh, an idea about helping the most vulnerable and. Ah. 
either made it sound like or was made to sound like she was saying we're going to give, you know, we're going to distribute aid based on race or something, which isn't the case. That's not what she said. Right. No, but I mean, it is true. Like it, there is a phenomenon that uh, has been documented. I think ProPublica did a piece on it uh, relatively recently that isn't about the way FEMA distributes immediate aid, but is about the way that people are encouraged to and reimbursed for um, storm proofing their homes or doing right. things like raising their homes on pillars. There was a big scandal in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina about these very enthusiastic people coming out and encouraging people to accept grants that would help them raise their houses. Uh, whether right. And the drama came over. The People would say, well, I don't think I'm actually in that zone. I'm not sure I'm entitled to this. And they would say, no, 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 we're just encouraging everything to do it. Don't worry about that. They would accept the money. They would make the changes. And then someone would come around and say, oh, actually, you didn't deserve that. You owe us $15,000 or whatever. Oh, my God. Um, but it is right. also true that, you know, there's uh, it is true that, you know, wealthier and more affluent communities get a lot more support in preparing for these events. Yes. Uh, and, yes. you know, I don't know in what ham-fisted way uh, Kamala Harris decided to allude to that, but she obviously set off a bunch of alarm bells. Interesting. Let me tell you also, speaking of alarm bells, John, the New York Post, the New York Post wishes this headline were true. Uh, over the weekend, it had a headline uh, saying, Ex-Clinton advisor Hillary setting up 2024 presidential bid with open borders critique of Biden. There's a colon in there that made that hard to understand. The headline is a little bit misleading. It cites uh, this guy, Dick Morris, who I guess advised Bill on his 1992 campaign. Uh, And so he told some radio program that he sees signals that Hillary is setting up a 2024 challenge to Biden from the center. Uh, He... You know, he is not in a position to say definitively, well, that is happening or not. Uh, But he says she's going to look at the midterm results. She's going to say the left cost us the House and the Senate to her Democratic colleagues. And if we stay with the left wing candidate in 2024, we're going to lose the White House. I'm the only one who will tack to the center and give us a chance at victory. The idea of Hillary Clinton running to the right of Joe Biden and trying to call him. Uh, you know, a a radical Democrat or whatever. I just, it would be a sight yeah. to see. I don't yeah, think this I, is going to happen. There was a there was a piece that our friend Jeremy Kuzmarov wrote that ran recently in Covert Action magazine, predicting that Hillary Clinton would run for president against Joe Biden. Uh, and I, I stress the words against Joe Biden, not yep. waiting to see if Biden decides not to run. Yeah. Um, and many of us on the editorial board at the magazine criticized him and said there was literally nothing out there to indicate that Hillary Clinton was was uh, planning a run for president. Mm-hmm. Now, Dick Morris is not the most reliable character in the Washington political world. What? Um the, the the Clintons fired him. Uh, he he was an aide, uh, a campaign aide in the '96 uh, race, and he was fired just after that. He's endorsed every Republican running for president ever since. Um, he doesn't have access to the Clintons. He hasn't in decades. Mm-hmm. But he's still a serious political player, at least among the 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 right mm-hmm. in uh, in Washington. So who knows? Maybe he picked something up 
that uh, that indicates that Hillary's considering a run? I don't know. I can't I, imagine that she runs because she risks losing yet again. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I she's just got her her execrable Apple TV docuseries. Uh, they've got right. the Clinton Go- Global Initiative up and running again. Uh, so, you know, she looks like she's doing this sort of ex the the ex politician thing uh, of, you know, get getting on TV and getting your philanthropic efforts uh, running. So I, I don't know. I don't I don't yes. think that she's going anywhere. I don't either. Um, there were a couple of stories that maybe encroach on politics territory also uh, and polls territory, but I thought they were really interesting. Um, you have a story in Politico saying that over the past decade, the advantage Democrats have over Republicans among Latino voters has shrunk by half. So they have this new NBC Telemundo poll released yesterday that said 54% of Latino voters surveyed said they preferred Democrats to be in charge of Congress compared with 33% who would prefer Republicans. That is a gap of 21 points. But in October 2012, that gap was 42 points. And so it has been shrinking steadily over the years. There wasn't any big collapse. They've just been slowly, you know, uh, slowly Losing this gap, President Biden's Biden's approval rating now among Latino voters is 51 percent. His disapproval rating is 45 percent. And I don't know what Democrats can do to counteract this. And I think part of what is happening is that, you know, it is now sort of college educated voters who are the, the Democrat base. It's not the working class. And the working class is on its way to being a minority majority in the next decade, which is always a weird phrase to say, but it's going, you know, and Latino voters or Latinos in the United States are, are very overrepresented in the working class. And I think something that's happening here is that these political parties really refuse to see anything but race. Right. And so... Yeah. I was I was noticing this this morning because I was looking for some some demographics on like, you know, sp- some specific statistics I could cite when it comes to, you know, w- w- what parties do people with college educations vote for? And there's all this stuff about the white working class. And you can find out what white college educators, college educated uh, voters do and what white non-college educated voters do. It's very hard to just get everyone together. Right. Yes. And it's yes. sort of like it just feels like they, uh, you know, pollsters, consultants, whoever's, uh, try, you know, whoever's job it is to pay attention to this stuff. They look at some cohorts of people in this country and just go, OK, you're this ethnicity. Nothing else about you matters. We know how you're going to vote just based on that. And it isn't true. And so I think, you know. It shouldn't be a surprise that as Democrats uh, lose the working class, they lose the whole working class because individual people, you know, get to decide on their own what is what is most important to them and what what is, you know, matters most in their life. And I think uh, I, I think that they miss this. And I think that it's really it's it's an interesting phenomenon to watch. Oh, I think I think you're exactly right. And it's certainly something that we'll continue watching. The other thing that um, goes along with this is this opinion piece in The Washington Post that is pointing to polling from the end of last month showing Republican J.D. Vance and Democrat Tim Ryan in a dead heat in Ohio and saying, if your polls are showing you that, you are undercounting the Republican electorate the same way Trump voters were undercounted. And 
Well, yes. they offered a variety of reasons why this might happen. Uh, you know, personal disinclination to participate is a big one. There was the whole phenomenon of the shy Trump voter. But also yeah. what seems to happen is uh, people with college educations are overrepresented in polling. So the story says you have a Pennsylvania poll that shows the Senate race between Mehmet Oz and uh, John Fetterman tied. But 48 percent of respondents had a college degree or higher, whereas Ooh. census data for the state pegs that at 32 percent. So you're missing, you know, you are overrepresenting a, a certain amount of the electorate and the uh, part of the electorate that you're overrepresenting are Democrats, generally speaking. Yeah. Right. That's where the trend is. Yeah. And so I think this is all really interesting. I also think it's interesting that the definition of working class is just, do you have a college degree or not? Doesn't, I mean, I know that, you know, often has something to do with your income or whatever, but it doesn't always. It's just, it's sort of a, it's an odd definition to me. I don't know why. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, You know, there's been a lot of talk about this over the last couple of weeks. Um, The New York Times said just a few days ago that pollsters were worried that their uh, polls are just simply wrong, like they were wrong in 2016. And it said that they're sort of self-flagellating because they just can't figure out what they're doing wrong and how to get this right. I think what you just said is is right on. They're overcounting people who are likely Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. And I think that you also have to account when you take these polls. I don't know how to do it, but you also have to account for the the shy Trump voter, people who won't admit that they like Donald Trump because they don't want to take heat from their friends and family. But then when they go into the voting booth and it's private in there and Mm -hmm. nobody can see what they're doing, they pull that lever for for Donald Trump or for candidates like him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the race in Brazil, we're going to ask our our guest if that is a phenomenon that happened with Bolsonaro, because Bolsonaro, while he did not win, that's going to go to a runoff, um, did a lot better than polls would have predicted. Uh, I think. And so I want to find out if that is something that has gone wrong. I know we have our next guest on the line, but I do want to mention this one story that I just saw, uh, again, in the New York Post, uh, that I hope to get into in a little bit more detail tomorrow if I can. But Kim Kardashian uh, was charged by the SEC <laughs> over an Instagram post that they sure said was. was a cryptocurrency pump and dump scheme. And so yep. the Securities and Exchange Commission announced today it had charged her for touting on social media a crypto asset security without disclosing the payment she received for the promotion and She's already settled, according to the SEC. She's going to pay uh, $1.26 million in penalties uh, with the investigation. But, man, this is something I want to... I want to talk about how these pump-and-dump schemes work. I want to talk about who's doing them. And I want to talk about why, you know, if Kim Kardashian's a billionaire. Why is she trying to make more money getting people yeah. with less money than she has to lose Amen. it? It's disgusting, mm-hmm. right? It is. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping to talk a little bit more about that later, but I wanted to mention it today. Uh, I think we'll take a break here and come back for some, uh, some good old geopolitics. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in DC and we'll be right back. Welcome back to 
Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. All major Western media over the weekend reported that Ukrainian forces had pushed all Russian troops out of the Ukrainian supply hub of Liman. Former and current U.S. officials called the development potentially catastrophic for the Russian military and said that it could jeopardize Russia's ability to control the Donetsk region. Other reports indicated that Russian forces had captured the Ukrainian director of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, and United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres called on President Putin to disavow the use of any nuclear weapons in the conflict. Perhaps most importantly, Despite the fluidity on the ground, there are still no credible calls for diplomacy, and no country has offered to mediate the dispute. We're joined by Jim Jatras. Jim's a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Jim, it's always great to have you. Thanks for joining us. And John, Michelle, it's always great to be had. Jim, the Washington Post had something of a more sober treatment today than it has in recent days of the situation on the ground. It says that despite recent Ukrainian gains, the Ukrainian military is still dwarfed by the Russian military, and the Russians have just initiated a call-up to replenish troops. With that said, morale in the Russian military has to be suffering. Russians of draft age are leaving the country at a rate of 10,000 a day, and there are anti-draft protests around Russia. What are your thoughts on the next few weeks in this war? What direction are things going? Well, I think right now the Ukrainian side is uh, having its last hurrah here, who was a Civil War general that said, hit them where they ain't. And I think that's what the Ukrainians have done in recent weeks because the Russian lines have been thin in some places because it is a limited contingent for a uh, special military operation. They've taken advantage of that. But even there, where the Russians have then pulled back, where they didn't have a strong defense, the advancing Ukrainian forces have still suffered horrendous casualties and really, as McGregor and other people have pointed out, have really been replicating what the Germans did when they fell onto the defensive in World War II, where they they expended large numbers of men and materiel, either advancing on or trying to defend useless pieces of ground. So I think you know I, I think that's I, I think that, that yeah that right now the, the Ukrainians are all giving each other a high five and some some of the Western supporters, but that's going to change in the very near future as the Russians bring these additional forces to bear. Well, that kind of leads to my next question. Um, We're not talking then about strategic mistakes made by the Russian military. The tide has it turned to the point where the Ukrainian military is going to sort of march triumphantly into these uh, into these regions. Um, I think you raise an important point that uh, that deserves uh, a repeat, and that is that this has been a, a small Russian contingent. Uh, it's A lot of it is not regular army. Now there is a call-up of some 300,000 people. Um, is that enough to stabilize the areas that the Russians already have taken? I, I don't know. And, and this is the thing I don't quite understand, John and Michelle, is that, the, you know, believe it or not, the Russian general staff never consults Field Marshal Jatris. So there's... <laughs> I don't think just additional manpower itself will make any difference unless they change the nature of the war, which it appears they're about to do. Now that they're switching the war, it seems, from a special military operation to a counter-terrorist operation in defense of what they're now calling Russian territory, I think the, the, the 
the, the scope of the war is going to change in terms of the targets they're hitting, maybe targets in Kiev, the, uh, the SBU headquarters, uh, you know, the, more of the infrastructure. Uh, I, I think that we're going to see something along the lines of a massive offensive from the Russian side. I don't know. I would think that the next place they're likely to move would be toward Nikolaev and, and Transnistria and then cutting off Odessa the rest of Ukraine. I cannot believe that they were not, they're, they're, they're going to leave uh, Kharkov in the hands of Kiev. So I don't know. But again, I'm just guessing. Jim, you're a former diplomat, and I know that we've talked about this in the past, but I have to ask you, why are we not hearing anything about even the possibility of peace talks? Why, for example, are the Chinese not offering to host talks or the Turks? Why is there no international effort to end this conflict? And do you expect that to change? No, I don't expect that to change. I think one of the reasons the Chinese are, are not doing it is because, one, they want the Russians to win. And B, they are not an honest broker from the West point of view. After all, we're, we're playing chicken with them in the Straits of Taiwan. How can they be a broker for what is essentially a proxy war between the United States and Russia? As far as Turkey goes, there have been at least, uh, uh, un, uh, let's say, unconfirmed rumors that Saudi Arabia and Turkey have been trying to come up with some kind of, uh, of a negotiation. But I, I don't think either side is prepared to negotiate. The Russians realize that this is an ex- existential war for them now. They must win. And the Ukrainian side, which is still being propped up by the Western powers, is not ready to settle. I think that's one reason that the Russians have had switch their strategy as they move forward, because at each point where they think it would be reasonable for Kiev to sue for peace, Kiev has been unwilling to do that. And I think that's going to continue until, frankly, there may not be any Ukraine left. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan held an unannounced meeting yesterday with Turkish Presidential Advisor Ibrahim Kalin. The media reported after the fact that they discussed Swedish and Finnish accession to NATO, the Ukraine war and sanctions against Russia. None of these topics come as a surprise. Turkey walks a tightrope, as we all know, between NATO and its relations with Russia and Syria at all. I understand why the two sides would meet. The fact that they met is just a normal development. What I don't understand is why the meeting would have been kept secret. And maybe it's nothing, but the weekend in Turkey is Saturday and Sunday, right? Because the Turks are supposed to be westernized and secular. So their weekend is Saturday and Sunday, like ours. Routine meetings, diplomatic meetings, are not held on weekends normally. Can you speculate as to what this was all about? It's hard to be sure of any of these things. You're right. Turkey is walking a tightrope. Mr. Erdogan has shown a great talent. Uh, I hope not too much uh, ethnic stereotyping here as a, as, a, as a wily rug merchant to extort from other concessions that he wants and which he's still seeking from NATO and also from uh, Finland and Sweden as the price for their accession, on which I think he will finally relent. Uh, he's got his own business going on in not only in the Caucasus, but but threatening the Greeks and the Aegean. Uh, he's and, and, and of course, you mentioned Syria. He's got a lot of irons in the fire. So I think it's natural they would talk with the American side. I don't know that there's any a natural meeting of the minds there, because from the Western side, as they, for example, early in the war, tried to get China, of all people, to get in on the sanctions against Russia, I think they're casting around desperately to find some kind of leverage with other parties that have shown some independence in their policy. I don't think much is going to come of it. I hate to say that I think you're right. Um, 
Bloomberg reported yesterday that OPEC Plus is considering an oil production cut of a million barrels a day. That, of course, would keep prices up, but it would also keep Russian oil attractive to countries like China and India, which are huge energy consumers. Representative Ro Khanna tweeted yesterday that if this happens, the United States should consider cutting off aviation trade with Saudi Arabia, that Washington should restrict sales from Boeing, Raytheon, uh, you know, the other the other uh, defense contractors to Saudi Arabia. Walk us through this. Is this a money grab by OPEC plus or is there some sort of long term strategy here? I think it's both. I mean, make hay while the sun shines. And if the current circumstances allow you to sell your oil for higher prices, why not do it? Uh, as far as the longer term, yes, I think it's quite clear that the Saudis, the Turks, and many others, uh, longtime partners of the United States are uh, edging closer to the Eurasian camp, if you want to call it that, to hedge their bets at the very least. Uh, you know, look, look what's happened with India that uh, that that uh, Washington invested so much time and effort on this ridiculous quad concept against China. And then, of course, when the Ukraine war started, the Indians made it quite clear that they are not going to join the camp that's aligned against Russia. So I think I think a lot of countries that we're used to dealing with are taking a very, uh, with the exception of the European countries, of course, which apparently have no limit to the insult and, and, and sabotage they're willing to take from Washington, that these other countries are willing to plot their own path for their own benefit. And what's the response from Washington? Okay, let's sanction them. That's all we've got up our sleeve. That's all we know how to do. I thought it was in- interesting, Jim. You know, there, there was a, a vote in the U.N. Security Council uh, to condemn the referendums in uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, and other parts of what used to be Ukraine. Uh, and the big headline was that China and India abstained on that vote. So did Brazil. Brazil and Gabon. And I, I've been wondering why only China and India have been getting m- much of the attention in Western media. Brazil is a pretty big uh, and significant country. It's also, uh, you know, a Politically sort of interesting. I mean, I can guess that its position in BRICS was part of what what went into um, abstaining from this this vote. Uh, But I wonder, you know, it seems to me that there is a deliberate focus on China and India and not elsewhere when it comes to, you know, looking at who is taking sides in this proxy conflict. And I wonder if you had any thoughts as to why they're getting all the attention and some other uh, abstentions and some other camps, as you say, deciding we're not going to we actually don't don't want any part in this. We don't want to take a side. You can't tell us who we can and can't do business with. I wonder why they're getting less attention. Well, I would have said that the real headliner there was Gabon. I mean, mm-hmm. if Gabon on side, I don't know what we're doing here. No, no, yeah. look, um, you're absolutely right. Brazil is the big news there because even though they're a member of BRICS, BRICS, BRICS is not a formal organization in the sense of its alliance or even even something like the Shanghai uh, Cooperation mm-hmm. Organization. It's, uh, in fact, technically of the United States, uh, uh, an ally of the United States under the Rio Treaty. And you might say, well, I, no, no doubt about it, our most significant partner here in the Western Hemisphere, which, by the way, is our own hemisphere, the one we should be paying the most attention to. Mm -hmm. We don't. So the fact that the Brazilians see that they need to in which way the wind is blowing globally as well, and of course Bolsonaro is is, is in a top, uh, in a, you know, in a tough uh, second round uh, uh, election now with uh, with De Lula. Uh, I, I think this is what we see Brazil's national interest 
being being uh, expressed rather than just cynical politics. And again, something that the European countries are not willing to do yet. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask you, uh, Jim, about whether you see what impact you might see of, you know, if OPEC does cut production, uh, what is that going to do to this whole conversation about price caps on Russian oil that, you know, Europe sort of talks about wanting to impose this? Uh, it seems like I do not know really how they would be able to enforce it globally. I don't even know how they would, you know, be able to get Hungary on board, for example. Uh, but does this, does, would a price, uh, sorry, production cut, you know, affect the the viability of any of these price cap plans, do you think? I, th- I think the price cap plans were non-starters from the start, um, I, I, you know, from the very beginning. I think what you referred to may just, you know, put another arrow in an already dead horse. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was going anywhere, anywhere uh, anyway, because there is simply no way to enforce that. And the producers are going to do what they think in their best interest. And jawboning from Washington or threats from Washington and the Europeans are simply not going to be heeded. Yeah, I think that's right. I want to ask you a follow-up on Turkey, if I could. You know, last time we had you on the show, I asked you this question, but I'd like to ask you again. Um, Turkish elections are next year. The Turks are... Oh, making noise in the Aegean. They're accusing the Greeks of violating Turkish airspace and uh, of of infringing on um, Turkish maritime borders. Over the weekend, the Turks threatened actually to invade the, the teeny tiny Greek island of Castellorizo, saying that the Treaty of Paris and the Treaty of Lausanne both served to demilitarize that island and that the groups have the Greeks have troops there, rather. Um, they're threatening uh, to try to disrupt these negotiations between the Cypriots, the Israelis, and the Lebanese over the extent of the the gas drilling and how much of that should go to Lebanon, as well as the negotiations between Israel and Lebanon on their maritime border. It's just trouble, 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 it seems to me. And I'm biased, I admit. But uh, it just seems like the Turks are making all kinds of trouble. Now, in my mind, Jim... This all comes back to the election. Uh, Erdogan is in trouble. He knows that in order to uh, to get out of that trouble, he needs to unify the Turkish people. A nice, quick little war would serve to do that. And uh, I'm not the only one who thinks that. I think most observers are saying that there's a chance that the Turks could lash out, if only in the short term, to make... Erdogan more attractive to Turkish voters. What do you think? I, I, unfortunately, John, I think that's a distinct possibility. I know a lot of people in Athens and also in, in NATO and in Washington kind of dismiss that as more bluster from Erdogan. But, uh, you know, a, a small garrison on Castellorizo is not able to defend it. The Greeks seem rather no. confident that their air force and their navy can defeat a Turkish attack on the Dodecanese Islands, other islands in the Aegean. Maybe they're right. I don't know. Um, but uh, Castellorizo... I don't think that is defensible. If you look where it is, it's it's a, it's almost halfway between Rhodes and Cyprus. It's way out. Yeah. It's very small. It's very close to the Turkish coast. And it's strategically important because if the Turks were to capture that, the whole economic zone map in the eastern Mediterranean changes. 
In fact, Absolutely. if we look at those economic zones with Castellorizo being in, in Turkish hands, then you no longer have that Greek, Cyprus, Israel uh, uh, connecting set of zones across the Eastern Med. The Turks can assert that they have a zone that links links with uh, Libya's. So, you know, it, it's a very right. complex kind of economic map. Nobody would recognize that bit of Turkish larceny if they did it. But nonetheless, they'd be in a position to assert that I think would be a very tempting target for Erdogan. And, you know, it also comes back to that question that, of course, nobody's able to answer. What happens when one NATO country attacks another NATO country? Well, yeah, that's right. And this is where, you know, I think, you know, just like the the, the Poles right now, uh, uh, simultaneously picking a fight with both the Russians and the Germans, how does that usually work out for them? The idea that the Greeks have is that, oh, well, if the Turks attack, uh, the, the Americans and the Europeans will come to our rescue. No, they won't. No, no, they won't. Um, I want to ask you, too, about Yemen. The Yemen ceasefire expired over the weekend, Jim, and the three parties, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and the United Arab Emirates, failed to extend it. They they did negotiate over the course of the weekend and then finished the weekend with nothing, nothing to show for it. The UN called for all three sides to refrain from attacking one another, and there haven't been any attacks today. But there seems to be no real end in sight for this war. Do you see hostilities starting up again, or do you think there's hope for peace in Yemen? Well, there's always hope. I, I think it's a question less of do they have an agreement or not, but rather have the parties exhausted their ability to or their right. desire to pursue dreams through war. And, you know, maybe the thing will simply slouch into peace and, the, and an agreement will take uh, shape at some later date. I think it's less of a question of diplomacy and how the, the various parties see their interests and whether they're tired of this, um, of this, this you know, reprehensible a humanitarian disaster down there that really doesn't bring any gain to any of these parties. Yeah, that's true. And I wonder if they're exhausted. I would think that they are. Um, listen, I lived in Saudi Arabia. I served in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis are cowards. And every time the Yemenis launch a scud at them or something even less than a scud, now a, uh, a drone, an armed drone, it panics them. And then, of course, they overreact by bombing the daylights out of hospitals and schools and water plants and things like that. But the Saudis, the Saudis have always been afraid of the Yemenis because the Yemenis are willing to fight to the death. They have nothing to lose. And I wonder if they're just exhausted and want this to go away. And maybe that's why, even though the ceasefire ended, we haven't seen hostilities start back up immediately. Otherwise, I, I would have expected the fighting to start back up. And maybe so, and I hope so. And, and along with what we were talking about earlier, what are the Saudis doing on the big picture regarding the United States, their longtime partner on the one hand, and the what they may see as the rising uh, forces of Eurasia? Uh, if, they, if they're looking ahead to saying, well, look, we're not going to be relying on an American guarantee forever, that maybe we do need to start passing things up with the Iranians. And there have been discussions of, you know, very quiet talks between Tehran and uh, Riyadh. Maybe they would see that playing this kind of a role in the region is not to their interest and then working things out with other regional powers and trying to calm Yemen down is in their interest if they reach that conclusion. I don't know if they have yet. Well, thanks for joining us, Jim Jatras. Jim is a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We have a whole lot more, so stay tuned. 
back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And of course, some big news that we were watching over the weekend were the results of the first round of voting in Brazil's presidential election. Uh, Those results were not what everyone expected. Uh, And so we are going to get into that and we're getting going to get into what might happen in the runoff. In the first round of voting in Brazil over the weekend, former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva came out on top, but it was a much closer race than many predicted, and incumbent Jair Bolsonaro only trailed uh, Lula by five points. So this was not the double-digit lead that polls had pointed to. Lula missed the threshold to win outright in the first round. He would have needed to take uh, over 50% of the vote, and so we are going to go to a runoff. Breaking down these results for us is Alini Piva. She is a researcher and journalist based in Sao Paulo. Alini, thank you for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Let's talk about the results. 48% to 43%, uh, which is the figure I saw this morning, that is a lot closer than a lot of polls showed in the days leading up to the actual vote. And so I want to start by asking what you think happened. Uh, Did one side get more turnout? Was the polling flawed? Do you think there were last-minute changes of heart or secret Bolsonaro voters who didn't speak up? What, What do you think happened? I think there are a few things that changed in this last week. Uh, one of them is that the polls were actually wrong in three of the major states here in Brazil. So Paulo, Minas, and Paraná. Uh, for example, if you look at São Paulo, who has, you know, the majority of the voters in the country, uh, all of the polls were showing that Lula would have an advantage of uh, depending on the poll, mm-hmm. uh, up to 12 percent points, 12 points in advantage. And he ended up, with, you know, behind Bolsonaro by 10 points. Mm-hmm. So this made a huge difference. I think another thing that might have changed the results is that um, what we have been calling here as the, you know, the hidden vote in Bolsonaro. Those people who support him, uh, who, you know, will vote for him, but is too kind of, I don't know, ashamed mm-hmm. to say that they are actually going to vote for Bolsonaro. And the third thing, and I think this is important, is that although we did not, Lula did not win in the first round. This was a really good uh, voting for him. When you look at the historical series, this is actually the second best uh, voting in the Workers' Party for a first-round election, presidential election. So Mm -hmm. it's quite good despite all the attacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very useful context to put this in. It was closer than expected, but still, you know, a historic performance for Lula. So uh, then I want to ask, who do you think benefits most in this runoff? Uh, in the original vote, were there more challengers for the left wing vote or the right wing vote? Who who picks up more in a head to head challenge? When you look at the Congress, for example, the makeup of Congress that we can 
already see now uh, with all the uh, the voting centers that are closed, counted out the votes. Uh, you see that it's kind of tied up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bolsonarismo won very important seats in the Senate, uh, won very important seats in the lower house, uh, but also lost some of those seats. You see that, you know, figures that were kind of the face, who were the face of Bolsonarismo, of the Bolsonarismo in key states, did not won. Mm-hmm. Other people won, but those people not. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the first time since the attacks against the Workers' Party that the party actually won more seats than the other uh, progressive leftist uh, parties. Also, PSOL, which is a progressive party here, uh, did really well, won 14 seats, which is something historical. So at the end of the day, it's kind of tied up. Uh, but we can see that although the left is having kind of a new push ahead, Bolsonarismo is, is still strong. Mm-hmm. And that's very worrisome. Bolsonaro had over 50 million people voting for him. And that's a lot of people after four years of attacks, of undoing everything that we had conquered in terms of the labor rights, healthcare, mm-hmm. education, pandemic, and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm imagining that it, Lula is still predicted to win, but I wonder, is that is that the case? Yeah, that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll so that he has... Um, he has. He is the favorite for the second round, but the results for first round it is a bit. Maybe it's not going to be as easy as we were expecting mm-hmm. uh, before yesterday. I think yesterday showed that this is not a done deal. Um, there is still a lot of work that has to be done before before we we actually get that. Uh, mm-hmm in the second round. And if he does win, uh, the Congress that he will be working with is sort of a, is a mixed bag. Exactly. And that's going to be a challenge even bigger than winning the second round. Mm-hmm. The Senate has a majority of Bolsonaristas. Lower House is a bit more balanced, but it's still not like the strong majority that we were hoping for for mm-hmm. the election. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes me wonder if uh, I'm trying to think back to the origins of the uh, car wash scandal, you know, that that brought down um, Dilma Rousseff and, and Lula himself and where that originated. Right. Does Lula have something to fear if he comes into a Congress where the Senate is dominated by these uh, Bolsonaristas? And one of the senators is Sergio Moro, the judge who was in charge of Lava Jato. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be something that actually will have an impact. I'm not really sure uh, if they are still running in the ticket like uh, corruption and so on, because they are so deep involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people who were leading those investigations are so involved in corruption. But that's going to be really trick for the Workers' Party and for Bolsonaro. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry for Lula. Mm -hmm. Do you think uh, that a a close result 
in the runoff will make Bolsonaro more likely to challenge it. Because, of course, a lot of the conversation leading up to these elections were about these statements that Bolsonaro was making, that maybe uh, the vote couldn't be trusted, uh, you know, that the voting machines had problems, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm wondering, um, you know, if if Bolsonaro's camp has said anything about these results uh, or, you know, if it looks like it's going to be a close race that people are increasingly worried that that he's going to feel empowered to reject these results. For now, there are two different messages uh, kind of circulating in the Bolsonarista area. Uh, so one is what Bolsonaro said. See, you cannot trust the polls. They are working against us. They try to demobilize us. So they kind of shift the focus to the the polls, the institutions that are doing the polls, kind of saying they wanted to manipulate uh, kind of the general climate here. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are what is more being said by the basis, his sons, and so on, that is actually uh, we have to be uh, prepared. They are going to try to take power, uh, whatever the cost is. I think they shifted this a bit because of, you know, some international signs and uh, that they wouldn't support and kind of challenging the legitimacy of the election. So they are trying to shift the folks. But I think this is something that we still have to uh, bear in mind. It's not something that we can just disregard or say that he's not going to try. Mm-hmm. It's less clear than it was before, but it, it's still on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, the parallels with the United States where, yeah, polling just for for some reason, for a lot of reasons, probably fails to capture uh, the intentions of a cohort of voters. And then, you know, the results are are pretty different from what was predicted. And it does give some ammunition to these politicians to say, look, they are deliberately trying. They're trying to suppress us. You know, they're, they're trying to show you that your candidate's too unpopular to even bother voting for. On on that note, Alinea, can you tell us anything about turnout? Were, was there was there good turnout for this vote? Did people were people excited about it? Uh, so the turnout was as expected, but the uh, people who kind of voided their vote and people who voted blank, we have this here in Brazil, uh, that was higher than historical levels. So people who kind of do a protest vote, we are not going to vote for either of these candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a very interesting move. And another move that was really interesting regarding like voting tendencies is that the votes for Ciro Gomes, people who would vote for him, and we were expecting that those votes would migrate to Lula, they actually migrated to Bolsonaro. Mm. So what we saw is that this candidate that usually runs in the progressive platform, his voters prefer to vote for Bolsonaro than for Lula. This was a very interesting analysis there in the in the voting tendencies. Yeah, that that sort of um, relates to this question I wanted to ask about how these two candidates 
uh, are described. This race is continually described in, in English me- media anyway as a contest between a right-wing populist in Bolsonaro and a left-wing populist in Lula. And I've always been skeptical as to how accurate that is because it would imply that there is, you know, there's some shared populism between the two. And I haven't heard a lot of people say that that's the case, that like Bolsonaro support also, you know, that has some roots in uh, you know, in Brazil's sort of, I guess, poor uh, sections of society. But what you're saying, if, if you have a, a significant number of um, voters from one progressive candidate going toward Bolsonaro, that might imply that some of his moves to bolster that um bolster that vote for him to bolster the vote of, uh, you know, economically disadvantaged people for Bolsonaro in the last couple of weeks before the election, that they might have um, borne some fruit. So I I wanted to ask you about this characterization as Lula as a left wing populist, Bolsonaro as a right wing populist. And, you know, if there is anything shared in between them. No, no, that isn't. Bolsonaro is a candidate that has no social base. There is a core like Bolsonarista vote here uh, in Brazil, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that this is a vote that has like a, a strong popular base, like a grassroots base that, you know, has that kind of work, which is really different from the Workers' Party and Lula. Mm-hmm. Uh, even more so, I think the voting Bolsonaro is more an anti-Workers' Party vote than a vote for, you know, supporting him. Uh, the media here, the general campaigning is extremely rooted in this, uh, in this general feeling against Lula, against the Workers' Party, like we have to uh, bring something new, like the third wave mm-hmm. or something like that. And in the absence of a third wave, we are prefer to vote for Bolsonaro than for Lula. Uh, it's less strong than it was in 2018 when Lula was arrested and Fernando Haddad had to take his place in the in the presidential race, but it's still a powerful force here. I wonder, you know, if, if, if as predicted, Lula wins, it's maybe closer than expected. He, uh, you know, takes power with a very divided Congress, but he takes power in a Latin America that has seen some really significant victor- victories for left-wing politicians. And so I wonder if, you know, uh, I wonder what you would predict in terms of uh, what that's going to mean for the region and what kind of foreign policy you see. I mean, it, it, it's interesting to think that he might, Lula might, you know, uh, take power with a government that is pretty divided in what what its priorities might be, but also, you know, he'll have a, a left-wing leader in Colombia. He will have a more liberal but left-wing leader in uh, Chile. You have Xiomara Castro in Honduras. And, you know, it, it, it makes for a pretty, potentially pretty powerful uh, left bloc in Latin America. Do you think that helps him a little bit at home? I think he will have much more it's space for maneuver, let's put it like that, in international affairs than he's going to have for national politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has already said that uh, he will foster like international cooperation. He will rebuild 
all these farms in Latin America, like farms that are more uh, focused on independence in the region, sovereignty of a new kind of international relations, as it was the model for uh, all the, the years the Workers' Party was uh, in power. Mm-hmm. So I think there he is going to find a much more uh, fruitful path to kind of implement the policies that he wanted to do than here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see this divided Congress, when you see uh, this Trinque how they are calling this broad coalition of parties, he, uh, he kind of worked uh, to get to this race as strong as he did. Uh, I think the challenges will be much more connected to that level of uh, intricacy of policies here in the country than international affairs. As you said, and you were right, we have a very uh, good momentum for progressive policies, for cooperation, for rebuilding uh, relations in the region. So that is going to be much more um, hopeful than here in the country. Mm -hmm. And can you remind us what Lula has said his domestic priorities are going to be uh, if he is elected? Yes, he wanted one of the things like he meant priority is to bring back uh, the programs that he created in education, healthcare, uh, uh, fighting back hunger, uh, putting people back, creating jobs. So one of I think he's aiming to use his four years in power to rebuild the country. Uh, we have lost a lot. Mm-hmm. In Brazil, we have 10 million children that go hunger every day. Mm-hmm. And we are talking only about children. Uh, the number, if you put the general population, is much, much higher. Uh, I mean, it's the size of France, more or less. Uh, the number of people who go hunger every day here in the country. Uh, economy is terrible. We have 14 million people who are unemployed. Uh, so there is a lot to do in terms just to give back, let's say, you know, people having access to the means to supply their basic needs. Mm-hmm. So that's one priority that uh, Lula is going to have right now, and it's not going to be an easy task. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was Alini Piva. She's a journalist and a researcher based in Sao Paulo. Alini, uh, is there anywhere that our listeners should go to find more of the work that you do? Uh, I'm working now uh, with Progressive International. We just brought a, a delegation here. We have been publishing a lot on Brazil. We are publishing more in the coming days. So if you go to the site of Progressive International, you can find a bit more of my work there. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We are going to take a break here in a second, and we're going to come back to talk about the the Supreme Court uh, to start uh, beginning its new term in an atmosphere of uh, intense distrust. We've talked about approval levels for various politicians, but for the Supreme Court, uh, their job approval is at a historic low. I am seeing a new Gallup poll that said 47% of U.S. adults say they have a great deal or a fair amount of trust in the judicial branch of the federal government. You can't even get to 50%. 
with the option Seriously. of saying, I have a fair amount of trust in the judicial branch. Yeah, fair. And only 40% um, ac- actually approve of the job that the Supreme Court's doing in that same poll. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like you, I, I can't recall uh, a period where there was less trust of the court system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've even had uh, justices in that court, you know, making the rounds talking about, uh, I don't know, there's, I guess, talking about this debate that now exists about where the legitimacy of that body comes from. Right. Right. Is it is it inherent or uh, does it have to come from its work? And I think this is really, uh, you know, at least in my recent memory, it's one of the most uh, there's there's a lot of public scrutiny of the court right now, is I, I guess what I'll say. Uh, I also Indeed. think that, that statistic that I cited, and we're going to take a break now in, in just one second, there's a 20 percentage point drop from two years ago in terms of that trust in the judicial branch. So this is a precipitous, right? This I. Uh, I think it's the result of a long, slow chipping away. But it, mm-hmm. if you feel like in the last couple of years, uh, everything around you is blown up, I, I think this poll bears that out. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about exactly this on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. And we'll be right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The Supreme Court's new term begins today. The newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, arrived at the court over the weekend, huddled with her staff, and toured the building. But her seat on the court doesn't change the 6-3 to three conservative tilt. Meanwhile, Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, testified before the January 6th committee last week, leading to speculation that Justice Thomas knew that his wife was trying to overturn the election and that he too may have supported his wife's actions. Democrats in Congress are calling for an investigation. In other news, we reported two weeks ago on protests in Iran that began when members of the morality police arrested a young woman, Mahsa Amini, for not having her hair covered. They later beat her to death, causing protests to erupt around, erupt around the country. Those protests are ongoing. And also, just one hour ago, AFRICOM, that's the Africa Command, announced that it had carried out a drone strike in Somalia that has resulted in the death of the leader of the terrorist group, al-Shabaab. We're joined by author and journalist Daniel Lazar. Welcome, Daniel. Uh, Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Dan, we wanted to start with the Supreme Court because you have written so much about it. And I I wanted to ask, you know... What are you expecting as this new term starts, right? Because as I was mentioning earlier, even justices on the court seem to be in some disagreement as to the body's legitimacy or at least, you know, where it comes from. And so, you know, if if you have uh, particular cases that you want to give predictions on, uh, absolutely go for it. But I'm also just thinking in a larger sense, what impact this term could have on this legitimacy conversation, especially since, you know, you can't even get half of the U.S. public to say they trust the court. Well, mm-hmm. there's no reason they should, because the court is a is an increasingly 
undemocratic uh, institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, the, the, court, the, 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 the court's conservative majority now consists of six people. Of those six, five were appointed by unelected presidents, either W or, uh, or, or Trump. Um, of those five, four were confirmed by senators representing a minority of the country. Okay, so it's doubly, triply um, uh, uh, undemocratic, minoritarian. Uh, the court does not represent the majority of the people in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So the people, therefore, have a reason to be hostile to the court and to doubt the court's legitimacy. I mean, after all, I mean, I mean what, is, what does legitimacy rest on in a democratic society other than democracy, other than the idea that the court's members are appointed through a democratic process? But the, quite the opposite is taking place. Um, the court, I mean, I mean, I don't know what, what impact this kind of critique will have in the court, I doubt very much, because the court will probably move very aggressively uh, in a number of key areas involving race and presidential elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see them holding back. I mean, there's no indication of any kind of reticence in their last, last term. The Dobbs case, case, which overthrew Roe v. Wade, that was not a decision issued by a reticent court. I mean, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's the court which is, you know, determined to, 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 you know, to seize the bull by the horns and, uh, and apply its logic mercilessly. So I expect more of the same, you know, as to what it means. Uh, I can't be sure. Uh, some of these affirmative action cases could have a profound effect. And the, the case in a and I think it's a Moore v. Harper out of North Carolina, which mm-hmm. deals with something called the the independent state legislature theory. Mm-hmm. I mean, could radically reshape U.S. Pres- presidential elections and not in a good way. Dan, what should we make of this, <clears throat> excuse me, this Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas thing? Ginny Thomas testified before the January 6th committee last week. She repeated the lie that Donald Trump won the election. Her testimony seemed to confirm that her husband knew what she was up to and he did nothing to stop her. Supreme Court justices in the past have been impeached for less than this. Do you think Clarence Thomas is in any trouble here? Is he at least going to have to answer for what he knew and when he knew it? No, I, don't, I really don't. I mean, I think the uh, this, these, uh, these January 6th hearings are having a, a very small impact. I think that uh, Thomas is absolutely secure. The Democrats do not have the votes in Congress to to tackle the 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 uh, the Thomas issue in any kind of you know forthright way. Uh, and I think he has, he has shown that he will carry on regardless, regardless of what the, the papers say, regardless of what the Democrats say, regardless of what the people say. <laughs> I want to talk yeah. to you a, a little bit about uh, how we should understand what the people say. I have a couple of big, unless I interrupted you, John, and you wanted more on Ginny Thomas. No, no, no. Go right ahead. Please I want to get, right ahead. I, I have a long question, Dan, and so indulge me, uh, but it's about Taiwan, public opinion, and war. Uh, and I, I noticed this because The Diplomat last week ran a story uh, with the headline, Taiwan and the world need to worry about Western disinterest in protecting it which I thought was a bizarre headline because the U.S. government has never actually been so forthcoming about its 
uh, interest in and intention to directly defend Taiwan if mainland China were to invade. I mean, you can believe Joe Biden or not, but he did say we would send troops to defend Taiwan. Um, but the story is about the polling of Western populations. Um, and so I, I want to ask about that. But but uh, first of all, sort of the, the point of this article is that publics, including the U.S. public, don't support sending troops to defend Taiwan, and therefore governments should worry about it. Taiwan should worry about it. And I wonder if you agree. I mean, is this, it, it, this premise would seem to be that wars must be popular for governments to uh, safely engage in them, politically speaking. And I wonder if you think that is the case at all. Well, I think it is the case. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think wars have got, you have to have a deep support for a war, because a war is a very trying experience, to state the obvious. I mean, you know, you're sending off the sons and daughters of the, of the electorate to be killed. Uh, you know, there'll be, there are economic consequences, which are, are almost always painful. Um, so therefore, yeah, I mean, war is, war is bad stuff. And if you don't have a solid, you know, basis of political support, of popular support, you're going to wind up in trouble. You know, you might be able to slip through if everything if everything goes great from the start, you know, and you, and you win a massive victory before anyone ha- you know knows what's up, and you know, and then the troops come home in a blaze of glory, and everyone has a great time. And, I mean, but it rarely works out that way. I mean, mm-hmm. in 1914, people were told the troops would be home for Christmas. Mm-hmm. That wasn't quite the case, um, and so that rarely is the case. And so, if there's a war in, if the U.S. goes to war over Taiwan, then the, the prospect is very uh, frightening, um, and uh, people in the region, in the West have every reason to be concerned and to be frightened. I mean, it raises the question then of how you build this support, right? It's, you know, which direction does this go, right? Uh, If you see a reason to have a war and you need to get the public behind it, uh, then I guess it seems like you need to, uh, you know, create some kind of massive advertising campaign. Uh, And so I wonder... If this is something that we'll see, because these polls, uh, what they found was you had the German Marshall Fund's transatlantic trend poll. It it looked at 14 Western countries uh, and they all preferred diplomacy and sanctions to respond to any military action taken by China with regard to Taiwan. Thirty five percent of respondents support their countries only taking diplomatic measures. Thirty two percent said, yeah, okay, well, we can do some joint economic sanctions, but only four percent would support their government sending troops or arms, which I thought was actually an interesting uh, distinction. Four per- only 4% said send arms. 12% said do nothing. Uh, 15% of U.S. respondents favored no action. If China invaded Taiwan, you had slightly lower figures in, in France, Germany, and the U.K., but they were pretty close. Um, last year, The Chicago Council found that 52% of American respondents favored using U.S. troops to defend Taiwan if China invaded. That was the highest level recorded since it started asking the question in 1982. But that poll just asked a binary question. Would you favor or oppose the use of U.S. troops if China invaded Taiwan? The German Marshall Fund, where it found that actually people 
maybe would support diplomacy and sanctions and did not want force, it gave uh, five different choices to respond to the question, if China invades Taiwan, do you think your country should do X, do Y, or Z? And so, you know, I wanted to ask, I think it shows how polls can be manipulated to uh, reflect what those who commission them want. Uh, I think possibly this decline in support for uh, for engagement shows, you know, the reaction of the U.S. public to the the reality of this conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and so I wonder I wonder how you think we should understand these results. And if if you're right, if if. You know, if governments only go to war if it's popular, should we all kind of relax about this new Cold War with China? Uh, sorry, with China that we're uh, we're sort of gearing up now because nobody wants to see it get hot. Well, we shouldn't relax because um, this is exactly what happened happened in the Ukraine. Hmm. I mean, if you did a poll, you know, from two with uh, you know two or three years ago, asking Americans, you know, if they wanted to send their sons and daughters off to uh, fight Ukraine, a, a, a tiny portion would have said yes. Mm -hmm. And 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 you'd be crazy to say yes. I mean, who wants to go there? Who wants to fight in that terrain for a country which has actually a very bad, very, a government that has a very bad reputation uh, internationally uh, with a lot of, you know, with a lot of unsavory political currents at work within its, you know, within its territory? I mean, who wants to do that? Mm -hmm. But yet the U.S. somehow stumbled into a war. Um, and, and this war, by the way, is not going down very well in Europe now that the energy prices are starting to bite. Um, and uh, the, 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 the unexpected fallout from the anti-Russian sanctions that were impo imposed by the U.S. and its allies. So people in Germany, people in you know, Czechoslovakia has seen massive demonstrations, protests against that war. Um, and, and they can only increase as the, uh, you know, as energy prices rise and the, and the sanctions continue to backfire and the war drags on indefinitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, this war is, is heating up, it's intensifying, um, and it could go on for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll and, be... And, at, no, at the end of that process, you know, what will be left? Yeah. It, I think it will be interesting to see if the U.S., uh, if the U.S. public at least starts to lose its enthusiasm for sending arms overseas. I really did think it was surprising that only 4% of those respondents said send troops or arms. Well, I mean, most Americans can't find Taiwan on, on a map. And, uh, and the one thing they know about Asia after Vietnam is don't go to war there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, and so those two lessons, you know, are those two facts are 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 very important. Um, and, and, and Americans don't know what this is about. Uh, I mean, something that just has something to do with navigation rights in the South China Sea. Right. Uh, but uh, but, you know, but but that's a very abstract idea from the point of view of most people in this country. And, and they can't see. They don't understand, you know, why they should make such immense sacrifices for such a, a an abstract principle. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, we haven't even discussed the uh, the the Nord Stream bombing, which right. uh, which I, I think will have a a profound effect on on public opinion in Europe, certainly, but around the world. Once I think it comes out as to who did the act. Do you think, I mean, let's talk about it then. Do What do you think is going to come out? I mean, do you think it is possible that it, I mean, what do you think happened, first of all? And then if you think 
what appears to be the most likely thing, which is that, that it was the United States, does that come out? I think it's going to come out. How, how does it not come out? I, I mean, mean uh, uh, it's um, it's uh, it's a it's 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 a it's the topic on everybody's lips, and and the U.S. keeps hollering disinformation, disinformation. It thinks it has enough control over mass media in Europe to you know to tamp to keep this debate tamped down, mm. but it really can't do that. Mm. I mean, you're you're seeing you're seeing massive discontent, massive political turbulence uh, in countries like Sweden, Italy, France, Germany, etc. Mm-hmm. You can't you, you can't bury this topic, and at this point, all all the indications are that the U.S. did it because there's because the the idea that Russia did it makes no sense. Um, and and none. And, and, and but we, with that said, though, Dan, I I have to say that I've been shocked. At the number of of friends of mine, highly educated, worldly, you know, people who follow these issues, shocked by the number who think that Putin did it. That's what I got yesterday from a friend of mine who spent 35 years in the Foreign Service. Putin did it, he said. I said, how do you figure that? All he, All Putin had to do was turn it off. Mm-hmm. That was it. Just turn it off. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, I would bet a paycheck that we did it. It just, you know, I, I said last week, qui bono, who benefits? The only people who benefit are the Americans. Yeah. And Joe Biden ran in 2020 saying that no gas will flow through those pipelines, period. Yeah. It just seems obvious to you and to me and to Michelle and, you know, to others of our political ilk. But I'm shocked by the number of people who think that the Russians did this. It's the straightest it make line, any sense to me. for sure. You know, you can yeah, do some backflips about like Russia, you know, whatever. They're, they're trying to set somebody up or something. But the straight line is from the U.S. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, Jeffrey Sachs was on Blo- uh, Bloomberg News a few hours ago. Uh, and he said, quote, I would bet it was a U.S. action. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, uh, the fact of the matter is all over the world. When I talk to people, they think the U.S. did it. And by the way, even reporters on our papers that are involved tell me privately that, well, of course it was that, but it doesn't show up in the media. I mean, this is the, right. you know, this is the, this is what people are, are, are realizing. The, the, the U.S. position makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It, does, it doesn't add up. The U.S. Had, had, has access, technological capability, and announced desire to shut it to destroy the pipeline. Uh, those are all very important facts pointing in the U.S. direction, and and I think that that it'll take a while for this for this to sink in several days, mm-hmm. maybe maybe a couple of weeks. Once it does, the impact will be will be prof- profound. Is that uh, Dan? Because you know, if you can't, if the U.S. does not have the control over European media, or the administration doesn't have control over the European media that it would like to. That you know, you are going to have populations in Europe as winter sets in, uh, really suffering uh, through you know a, a lack, sheer lack of energy and high bills, and now they they realize that it is the United States, if that's what comes out, that it's the United States that has, um, you know, uh, eliminated the option of actually finding some way to negotiate with Russia and having that tap to turn back on. And they're going to say, even if their governments won't talk about it, they will demand governments that will, that will respond to Uh, it. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you, you sort of can't bury this question. Mm-hmm. And you can't use the word disinformation to intimidate people and to, you know, and to shout them down. It won't work. And the, and the, the higher gas prices go, the lower, you know, the lower, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, heating, um, uh, the temperatures go in, inside, you know, inside German homes during the winter, uh, the, the, the more these, these questions will bubble up uh, and the more irrepressible such speculation will become. And I think, yeah, I think governments hang in the balance. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think if they, if this is confirmed, I think, uh, Schultz, the German, the German chancellor is a dead man walking. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, uh, protests continue in Iran after the death uh, of uh, Mahsa Amini. She died in the custody of the morality police. The Iranian government says 41 people have died in the protests, but outside observers say that they've identified 52 bodies, including five women and five children. Uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader, says the protests are the creation of the U.S. government. Nobody believes that. Uh, Even in Iran, nobody believes that. Do you see these protests going anywhere, or do you see them fizzling out like the protests in in 2017 and 2009? Where do these go? I I I I don't know. I really don't know. But they they I think the regime could easily fall. Uh, The 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 um, corruption. Well, easily is the wrong word. The the regime could conceivably fall. Uh, The um, corruption is very high. When you have sanctions applied in a country like Iran, what happens is you have you have you create opportunities for unscrupulous market uh, operators. Uh, this leads to a to a, a black market bourgeoisie. Uh, it actually uh, uh, intensifies um, the uh, economic disparities. So you have a a a, a business class which, which is which is making a lot of money. You have poor people who are suffering severely, suffering more and more. Uh, meanwhile, the morality police are are active in the working class neighborhoods, not the upscale areas. Uh, and the idea that some some working class woman making herself home, you know, making her way home, having to, you know, to have all the problems she has to cope with, barely able to put uh, put food on the table, that she's going to be arrested by the by the morality police, perhaps beaten up and spend several days in jail without knowing what even happens to her family in the meantime. This is completely outrageous. And, and I think that, the, that the, the public, the Iranian public, is, is furious, fed up. The mullahs have lost all credibility. So, yeah, I think that regime is on very shaky ground. Dan, The Guardian reported yesterday that in 1976, a secret intelligence unit working with the British intelligence service MI6 – interfered with the Italian elections to ensure that the Italian Communist Party did not win. This secret unit also apparently incited a mass murder in Indonesia and smeared Oginga Odinga, the left-wing vice president of Kenya. The British media today is up in arms over these reports. This was one NATO country running a covert operation against another NATO country. But it was also 46 years ago, 29 years after the CIA interfered 
in yet another Italian election to stop the communists. Do you think there will be any fallout or is this something that is a one day story that, you know, the historians are going to be interested in? I think it's more like a two or three day story. <laughs> I mean, I think the, uh, I think the, um, I, I know, look, first of all, the most, the, to me, the most striking thing is that Britain itself was, was recently the victim of a covert operation in which the, the press took part. And that was the, the, the amazing campaign aimed at purging the left wing of the uh, Labour Party yeah. on, on charges of anti-Semitism. Yes. Ironically, what's, uh, what's amazingly ironic is all the people who got, half the people who got purged were Jews. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Right. Apparently, apparently right. all the anti-Semites in, in Britain are Jewish. Um, and the, uh, uh, but it was, a, it was a classic, it was a classic, you know, uh, covert operation. I mean, you know, the Israeli embassy was very heavily involved. Uh, I don't know if the Americans had a role, but certainly Israel had a, had a major role. Uh, you know, these, 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 these expulsions were, ran, were rammed through. And the whole thing, whole idea was essentially to, to, uh, to eliminate the Labour Party's left wing, thereby making, turning the Labour Party into a British version of the U.S. Democratic Party, God forbid, um, and uh, and assuring the uh, the the British you know uh, ruling establishment that Keir Starmer would be a you know perfectly tame safe choice uh, for a prime minister. So I don't really see the essential difference between this and the Italian operation in 1976. I mean it yeah. was I mean first of all the the Italian CP by that by that point was actually a a, a much more centrist operation. Uh, Organization that most Americans realize, uh, and the um, and and the uh, the attempt was to make sure either that the CP stayed out of power or that you know that it understood its limits, uh, its limits imposed by NATO and the CIA, uh, and and um, and that's you know so there'll be a, a small fuss, uh, you know some people will be embarrassed, some people yeah. will, be, will be very outraged, but the same processes are still ongoing. Finally, Dan, uh, this this is kind of a crazy thing that happened over the weekend. Donald Trump made a very provocative post on Truth Social over the weekend in which he attacked Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, saying that McConnell has a death wish and then going on a racist rant against McConnell's wife, Elaine Chao, who worked for Trump as, what was it, transportation secretary, I think. Trump called her McConnell's China-loving wife, Coco Chow, and he spelled Chow, C-H-O-W. Mm-hmm. Even Trump supporters like Rick Scott, uh, one of the two senators from Florida, have come out against the statement. Uh, Scott said that racism is never, ever OK. Has Trump finally crossed a line or do his MAGA supporters just not care about this? Uh, the latter. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that the I mean, I don't think I mean, has Trump crossed the line? Trump's whole career is based on crossing lines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, and, and, and number two, I think that um, that uh, the problem with American political discourse is that the, is that the term racism has been so grossly overused that it has completely, yeah. you know, it, it's lost all its punch. Um, so, you know, so you can call people, someone a racist and, you know, eyebrows will be raised, but most people will just, will be, you know, will just move on because they just, 
are skeptical of what the word even means. Uh, it's very yeah. unfortunate, but I certainly think that's that's what's happened. So I think in this case, I mean, you know, I mean, Trump is Trump's words are disgusting. I mean, racism like that should be intolerable. But uh, but um, I think the uh, the public is now inured to it, and that um, that both sides of the aisle are guilty uh, have taken part in this kind of cheapening this kind of uh, cheapening of the term. Um, and therefore, I think it'll do Trump very little uh, damage at all. I mean, listen, we know from Brazil that the the far right is very strong, and uh, and there's no reason that we shouldn't think the same of the U.S. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I I'm beginning to think that the that, that the Republicans will do better in the midterms than people in polls now indicate, uh, and that uh, that the the far right is coming on extremely strong. Dan. Okay, we're going to... Hey, can I'm I sorry, follow up? I just have a question about <laughs> polls. Sorry, no, no, no. It, it, I like talking to Dan. Uh, and we've been talking about polls kind of all day. We, John and I started the show talking about some um, polling showing... Uh, you know, confirming the steady decline uh, that Democrats are experiencing when it comes to Latino voters. I think this, of course, you know, has to do with them losing their working class base and becoming, you know, the the party of of college educated voters. But uh, there was another story showing that uh, polling seems to overrepresent these college educated voters. And if we are seeing a sort of shift happening of working class voters moving toward the Republican Party, uh, you know, uh, polls are going to be skewed. And I wonder, you know, I wonder why you think that is. If it's that, what else there is? Why were the polls in Brazil so off? Uh, should we be concerned that they're going to be off again in 2024 like they were in 2016? Like, what, what do you think has happened to, to make it so hard to predict these results? Well, I think that got a couple of things. I think one thing is that people tend to tend to underreport. I mean, people are people may be a little embarrassed to come out and say they're for Donald Trump, but when it comes to the uh, when they actually enter the polling booth, they say, "Damn it!" and they they pull the Republican lever. Uh, and I think that 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 phenomenon was evident in uh, in Brazil as well, where you know people were embarrassed to say that they that they uh, they support uh, Bolsonaro, but nonetheless they have they don't feel good about Lula. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and that was, and the polls didn't catch that. Uh, and I think also maybe, you know, cause the, the very polling process may be more skewed to people who have better incomes, better education, who answer their phones, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, uh, and are, are happier to talk about these issues than, than people, you know, at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum who are not. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I think that there that, that there may be a a basic skew towards the center, and the polls may, for very basic uh, methodological reasons, may be losing some of the activity, losing oh, losing uh, a a grip on some of the activity out on the periphery. Okay, we're going to leave it there. That was the voice of author and journalist Daniel Lazar. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome 
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And uh, we are going to talk again about a Supreme Court challenge to an animal welfare law. Uh, We're going to talk about what implications the case could have for agriculture in the United States and what the Biden administration is doing to try to promote competition in our extremely monopolistic meat processing industry. Joining us today is John Boyd. He's a farmer and a civil rights activist. He's the founder and president of the nonprofit National Black Farmers Association. John, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, as we've mentioned on the show a couple times, one of the cases the Supreme Court is going to hear this term is a challenge to California's Proposition 12. Uh, Prop 12 passed by ballot measure in 2018, and it bans the sale of meat and eggs from animals that were raised using certain kinds of extreme confinement. In particular, it bans the sale of pork if it comes from producers that use gestation crates, which are enclosures where pregnant pigs are kept for most of their lives that are so small they can't turn around and stretch their limbs. And I mean, I think that is just a disgusting sentence to read. Uh, I don't know how you read that and think, no, 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 my, my industry relies on this kind of animal torture, and so we must defend it, but here we are. And the Department of Justice has come in and written a brief to the court supporting uh, the challenge to this law uh, that is backed by the pork industry. On the other hand, uh, a brief filed by 378 veterinarians and animal welfare scientists says the crates cause profound avoidable suffering and deprive pigs of a minimally acceptable level of welfare. The American Public Health Association, the Infectious Diseases Society of America and others also say these crates can contribute to disease spread to humans. Uh, And so, you know, the pork industry immediately took on this law. They tried and failed in lower courts to defeat it. So they're getting a hearing by the Supreme Court. The Justice Department is on their side. Uh, it says the act restricts interstate commerce, and that's the federal judgments territory. And so I want to start, John, with with the pork industry, because it's a little surprising that the Supreme Court has decided to hear this case at all. And so I wonder if you can talk to us about uh, the meat producers' lobbies and, and the kind of influence they are able to exert. Well, I was uh, I was surprised as well that the Department of Justice uh, kind of sided, uh, you know, with the uh, corporate America as far as on the pork side and those things. So I was kind of surprised at that measure. And you really have two uh, lobbying groups here that's been uh, lobbying for that. Uh, the National Pork Producers Council is one, and the American uh, Farm Bureau Federation. Those were the two uh, organizations that. I filed those briefs pushing this issue in, in our federal court, and like you said, failed in the lower courts. But this is something that's uh, been going on for a very, very long time. And, you know, farmers uh, like myself, uh, we love and respect our animals. And uh, I just don't see, you know, having them in the cages and things of that nature. Uh, animals need uh, to be able to have free range uh, to graze and, and, and uh, uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the runoff from these uh, large pork uh, facilities, uh, uh, farm operations, uh, you know, gets into the water and all of these things and cause all of those harmful things as well. Mm-hmm. One thing that we don't have in the United States is uh, labeling law. So people say that, uh, you know, this will have a huge impact. 
We also need labeling laws to enforce it because people need to know mm-hmm. where food comes from, uh, how safe it is, whether it's GMO or whether it was caged or all of these things. The American people have the right to, to know that and make the choice for themselves in America's supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, John, these two organizations that you mentioned, the Pork Producers Council and the other, the um, was it the National Farm Bureau, American Farm Bureau Federation, who do they represent? And maybe more importantly, like who do they not represent? I would say large-scale uh, farmers, conglomerate mm-hmm. uh, 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 pork uh, operations, you know, that has the mega houses on them that was, uh, you know, hundreds of, of, uh, of hogs and things of that nature. Not representing the small-scale producer like a fellow mm-hmm. like myself. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and those are the people that are mm-hmm. pushing this, you know, in Capitol mm-hmm. Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really affected uh, mm-hmm. the outcome here, and they mm-hmm. have uh, funding mm-hmm. that uh, primarily organizations mm-hmm. like mine do not have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to ask about... Uh, you know, these practices that would be banned under this law, well, how important, I mean, are these are these organizations saying that they are going to lose their business, that they won't be able to be profitable anymore? I mean, what what is the difference, I guess, between producing pork using these uh, these terrible gestation crates, and I know there are other laws about chickens as well, and, you know, producing pork otherwise? Uh, you know, do, do you believe that this is really crucial to their body? Bottom line, I don't think it's, uh, it's going to put these companies out of business. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a, a very similar law uh, that passed as well in the state of Massachusetts that also addresses uh, the very same issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was surprised to see that the Supreme Court got involved and, and was going to hear this case. And I think that they may, uh, you know, rule, rule differently based on the makeup. Uh, and we all know what the makeup there, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court, and how that may affect as well. Uh, so what, what what I'm concerned is is that small farmer uh, doesn't seem or has lost his voice in this fight, so to speak. Yeah. I, you know, I'm so I'm against I'm against this measure, and uh, you know, uh, farmers like I said, uh, like myself, treat our, fam- uh, our, our livestock with uh, dignity and respect. You know. I want to ask also about uh, what you said about labeling, because, you know, even if the court, uh, you know, upholds this law, uh, rules against this challenge, as you say, the the only way to enforce it is, I mean, for, for I guess, California is going to be enforcing uh, what can be imported into California. So there will be some kind of import controls, but also, yeah, for consumers to understand what they're buying and how it's been produced. And is there is there any kind of pressure to change the way food is labeled so people can have a better understanding of, of you know, what, the chain of events that brought them that, uh, you know, pork in the styrofoam tray or whatever kind of meat you're talking about? I've, I've supported labeling laws, uh, and it's always, uh, so far, has failed in, in, in Congress. Mm-hmm. It's something that the American people uh, need to get involved in and to representatives and let them know we need labeling laws in this country. You know, if a third world country can have labeling laws, why can't we have it here in the United States? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that has to happen. For the people that are listening, how it works in American agriculture is, when I sell my grain, my corn, my wheat, my soybeans, and my livestock, they don't ask me whether it was caged or, or what was on it or, or any of those things. But the American people need to know. 
And farmers like myself who take pride in what we grow and what we sell, uh, I want you to know what's in it. Mm-hmm. I want you to know what's in it. And these, these other bigger companies uh, that uh, don't want to disclose what they're doing are the ones that are opposed to labor laws. You know, the Monsanto's and, and those uh, conglomerates, they're opposed to it. Mm-hmm. We need labeling laws in this country so that the mother that's coming in with the baby in the shopping cart and read what's on that label and say, you know what, I would like to feed this to my to my family. Or it has a GMO trade or, or was from a cage farm or whatever. That mother or whoever would have the power to make that decision. And we're taking that away mm-hmm. from the American consumers in this country. Which is ironic because uh, so much of the, you know, the freedom that we are told we have has to do with choice, right? Has to do with consumer choice. And yet, actually, in particular, when you when you talk about agriculture, uh, you don't see, you know, uh, an arena full of small, small business owners competing against each other fairly. You see this incredibly uh, monopolized hyper-centralized, massive industry that is just sort of uh, hiding all of its practices behind, uh, yeah, uh, the the fact that we don't have uh, robust and and enforced labeling laws. Um, And you you also asked me earlier, you know, how would this affect, you know, large-scale corporate America? mm -hmm. And uh, Tyson CEO, uh, uh, Mr. Donnie Kelly, said it would not affect his, uh, you know, company uh, the the effect of only 4% is what he was saying. What? It doesn't sound like it's going to put them out of business, uh, you know, by having, uh, you know, this law in, in, in place. Uh, so instead, they're, you know, they're telling the, the, the owners of that company and those shareholders one story, but they're telling the Supreme Court a totally different uh, story in these briefs. Yeah. So that's uh, con- concerning to me. And again, it doesn't seem like uh, small-scale Agriculture has a, a really big voice in this in this fight here, and it needs to be heard. So, mm-hmm. thank you for having me on your show because I am a farmer. I've been farming for nearly forty years, and this is something that farmers take very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want people to know what's in their food. We want them to know uh, the pride and, and the dignity and respect that we have in our farming operations uh, for the food and goods that we produce for this country. Mm-hmm. You know, um, on that note, uh, the president last week convened a, a council on uh, hunger and nutrition, something like that. But and mostly this was about uh, hunger in America and uh, malnutrition and obesity. But in this uh, press conference, he also made an announcement that the agriculture department was taking steps to promote competition in the meat and poultry market, which was very welcome news to me. Uh, Joe Biden said that four major meat processing companies control the market to the detriment of small producers and to the detriment of consumers. And what he said he was going to do was to give grants to small meat processors so they can compete with those big four uh, and ultimately to help create more competition. Uh, He also said that this council was going to keep working to increase competition in the industry. And now... I, I am interested in, in how effective you think this is going to be, because uh, it feels to me like those grants are going to have to be pretty big uh, if you want small producers to compete with these big four. And I think it's interesting that, you know, there there's always the effort is always to support in a small way, smaller guys. It's never to 
exert real control over the uh, the massive industry players. And in my opinion, I, I think you need a little bit more control uh, and um, control of the big guys than, you know, throwing a couple of grants at the little guys. But what, what, do, what do you think, John? I mean, what do you think about, the, you know, even the fact that Joe Biden is saying, hey, we want to we want to help break up meat processing is maybe that's just positive enough in itself. I think it's good that finally acknowledging that we have a serious problem, uh, you know, with the those, those four major players in this country. So I want to give the president uh, props for even, like you said, making a statement. But on the grant side of it, uh, what we find as the National Black Farmers Association, it's very difficult to get these grants. Uh, they want matching funds and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, what farmers really need in this country is infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure by meaning uh, uh, equipment and all of the things that we need to to make our farming operations successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we're missing in American agriculture, and that's what's missing, and that's why you don't see more young people and more small-scale farmers survive in a very, very competitive industry mm-hmm. uh, because they don't have the infrastructure that's needed. That's what we need in this country. That's, that's the first thing. And like you said, the second thing, one of these processes to work and be competitive going to have to put some real resources into it. Uh, so that's that's what we see. So uh, it has to be some sort of balance here. Someone has to start that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, John, uh, it's on a different topic, but I know I think the last time we spoke to you on the show, uh, we were talking about measures to uh, improve equity in in farming that came in the American Rescue Plan by Joe Biden, especially to uh, try to make up for historic racism in the agriculture department and to try to specifically support black farmers. And then that all got tied up in the legal system. Uh, There was another farm debt relief plan that came into being with the Inflation Reduction Act. And I just wonder, you know, I I think that you were um, very pleased at what was being offered through the uh, American Rescue Plan. And I wonder, you know, what what you can tell us about the the legal troubles that that program got into and what Biden has done with this big um, infrastructure plan to support black farmers. Thank you very, very much for that question. It's something that uh, is at the forefront of, uh, of my work. And uh, the administration repealed debt relief. So the debt relief measure in IRA, uh, that would have uh, told $4 billion in debt relief uh, for farmers of color, uh, 14,000-plus farmers of color, even 120% debt relief. I was very, very uh, happy when that came out. And as you said, uh, we were sued in, in uh, 12 different complaints, a lot of uh, conservative uh, uh, type of uh, lawsuits, and they targeted conservative judges. Two of the courts, Florida and Texas, issued a temporary injunction. And uh, since then, the administration repealed that measure and replaced it uh, with a softer uh, language, farmers of distressed, mm-hmm. uh, distressed farmers that hasn't been uh, defined yet by, by USDA. The administration is now starting to foreclose on farmers of color. Mm. Uh, so I reached out to the president uh, for a meeting that he suggested that we have. and We haven't had that meeting uh, thus far. So I'm very concerned about the way the administration has handled this th- so far. Uh, right now, they're just saying that direct loans uh, uh, 
fall underneath a farm moratorium. Guaranteed loans do not and other agricultural lenders. Uh, so I'm very opposed to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm asking the administration. I had a meeting uh, last week with Leader Schumer, asking the administration to put a presidential farm moratorium in place that would prevent USDA and uh, moving forward with farm foreclosures until they can tell us how they're going to roll out this new program uh, that was just uh, passed. Mm-hmm. It especially seems like uh, right now, uh, it seems like farmers are going to be a f- a small farmers, right? Not not the huge guys, but small farmers will be particularly affected by uh, interest rate hikes, uh, by a possible coming recession. And yeah, the idea of, uh, you know, f- first promising this historic debt relief and then instead uh, presiding over a wave of foreclosures because of this economic upheaval, that would be a pretty sad turnaround. And what we're hearing from our members of the MBFA is that they're having to uh, file bankruptcy. And bankruptcy uh, causes uh, credit problems and ruins your farming operation. And we really don't want that when we can put a real uh, farm moratorium in place to protect these farmers Mm -hmm. while the administration figures out what in the Sam world they're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm very disappointed in how this has happened. And I've been really uh, weighing in uh, with the secretary the White House and other leaders in Congress uh, to for them to act and help America's farmers when we need it now. So we've faced the highest input cost in uh, history for us, and uh, diesel fuel and mm-hmm. fertilizer has tripled uh, from from three hundred bucks to a thousand or twelve hundred bucks a ton. Uh, equipment uh, we can't afford the new prices of equipment, and we're having a very very difficult time getting parts in to to uh, fix our equipment. So it's a very bad time in America's history for farmers. And you're going to, the American people are, are the ones who are going to pay for all of these high input costs mm-hmm. uh, by empty shelves and the high cost of food in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it won't be just baby formula that's going to be missing in the shelves in the coming months. It's going to be other items as well. Yeah, wow. Well, I, I, I hope they hear you. That was John Boyd. He's a farmer. He's a civil rights activist. He is president and founder of the National Black Farmers Association. Uh, John, where should people go to find out more about what, what the National Black Farmers Association is doing? Uh, blackfarmers.org. And I have a personal website, johnboydjr.com, nationalblackfarmersassociation.org. Uh, and we need support. And while, you know, while the grass is growing, the cows are starving. So we can't wait for the government to fix everything. Mm-hmm. We, the American people, have to start helping ourselves and start supporting America's farmers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Keep doing what we've been doing. Absolutely. John Boyd, thank you so much for joining us. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back. I've got more on that SEC fine. It's my favorite story of the day. And a couple more headlines. We're Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. And we'll be right back. Welcome back 
to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and uh, we've got a couple last stories. Some may be more important than others. I'm just, I'm now, <laughs> I'm deep into the SEC versus Kim K. Uh, there's a little bit more. Uh, We mentioned, of course, that Kim Kardashian is going to pay more than a million dollars in penalties to settle these charges that she uh, was promoting a cryptocurrency on Instagram without disclosing disclosing how much she was paid to do so. Um, She was paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars to promote these Emacs tokens. It's a token related to Ethereum. Uh, She did this back in the summer of twenty twenty one. And again, uh, you know. She's saying, this is not financial advice. I'm just sharing what my friends just told me about the token. No, you're not. You got paid $250,000 to it. And what you want is for a bunch of people who don't have nearly as much money as you do to go buy that token so its value will go up. So then you can sell whatever maybe you have of it while it's high uh, and leave everybody else holding the bag. I don't know why. It's just this kind of stuff, John, just leaps out to me as, as so illustrative of this, uh, you know, really parasitic and uh, exploitative relationship between oh, yes. between basically anybody who has a lot of money and anybody who doesn't, regardless of how you how you achieved that fortune. Uh, it, yes. It's just that this is a it's a classic pump and dump, they call it. Mm-hmm. It's criminal activity. She's fortunate that she gets out of this just having to pay a million and a quarter dollars. It's pocket change to her. She could go to prison for what she did. Well, I will say, I mean, we can still hope because she is cooperating with the investigation. So she's going to huh. she's paid a settlement, but maybe maybe that won't be all. I mean, I guess probably I guess probably. Interesting. That's it. Yeah. Uh, she also won't promote any crypto tokens for three years, which like, who cares now? I mean, it's, I have, I guess I know people who still think that uh, the the crypto market will come back, uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't make any predictions. Hard for me to see how the crypto market comes back when the uh, rest of the market is in a shambles. But who knows? I agree. You know, we said when it was crashing that it was it was like tulip bulbs. Mm-hmm. There's no intrinsic value in it. Now, Ethereum may be a little bit different because Ethereum's technology is actually used in problem solving and, you know, well, a variety of different things. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it, Dogecoin or Doggycoin or what, no, I don't Doge. even know how to pronounce it's Doge. it. <laughs> Doge. Yeah. I mean, what is it? It's it's nothing. It's based on nothing. It's like these uh, these NFTs of uh, you know grumpy gorilla or whatever it was. <laughs> There's nothing behind Bored, them. Bored ape. I love it. Yes. Bored, Bored ape. ape. That's yeah. Right. Grumpy gorilla. Okay, grandpa. <laughs> <I couldn't remember. laughs> this is This is grandpa talks crypto over here. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, and I will say also, at least tulips are a real thing that you can look at. That, that I would say there's more value in a tulip than uh, than any of the stuff that barely, you yes, know, indeed. just barely exists in in reality. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, you know, prove me wrong. Prove me wrong, and uh, just have the market go back up. Like I, I have a. Uh, you know, probably a, a, I have a tiny amount of money that I played in crypto with. So if you want to make that amount to more, go for it. But I'm my expectations are very low. Yeah, same here. I, same here. 
the other sort of funny thing that happened. So uh, we didn't go into a ton of detail about this last week, but, you know, Liz Truss, uh, it takes, you know, takes over for Boris Johnson in the UK as the prime minister and leader of the Tory party. She, uh, with her finance minister, uh, I guess her, is he the chancellor of the exchequer? I guess so. Uh, yeah, he's the chancellor of the exchequer. They, right. uh, release their mini budget, which would abolish it would, among other things would have abolished the top income tax rate of 45% on high earners. That. Right causes a chain reaction. I mean, it causes, you know, a fury uh, among a lot of the, uh, you know, the people of Britain who are not the, the top earners. Uh, but it also just sends markets into chaos. The, the pound falls to historic lows against the dollar. Uh, the British government has to step in to start buying government loans that it had just been selling or government bonds that it had been selling the week before because it was worried about their value collapsing. I guess it have to do all kinds of things to stave off uh, financial uncertainty. I think they're... Um, their credit rating got pushed into the negative by Standard & Poor, I think. Yeah, that that hurts. And it usually takes years to come back. The IMF came out and said, we really think you should reconsider. I mean, the IMF, right? The IMF says uh, you're you're giving away too much to the wealthy. I, I, I don't, you, you've gone very, very wrong. And so now <laughs> uh, they announced that uh, they're reversing those plans. After even her own party threatens to mutiny, uh, they are not. They're they're going to reinstate that tax, uh, and so it's being described as a humiliating about face that leaves her economic agenda in tatters and her grip on power uncertain. That happened so fast, John. Mm-hmm. It did. It did. It happened so quick. But you know what, though, so many. Well-informed British journalists predicted exactly this. Mm -hmm. They were the ones who warned us when Liz Truss became prime minister three or four weeks ago that she's a paper tiger. There's nothing behind her. She doesn't stand for anything except her own career advancement. So I don't think we should be surprised by any of this. There were also some reports. I think they were over the weekend uh, that uh, Joe Biden himself had called her an idiot. <laughs> like after oh. he met her for the first oh. time, said, well, this woman's oh. obviously an idiot and we can't take her. We can't take her seriously. <laughs> Which I think, you know, seems to just be the case. But like, yeah, what I, I wonder is there what are the chances that Boris Johnson actually comes back? Is there any chance that the Tories just go, well, OK, we tried somebody else, but he's he's back now. He's promised not to uh, promise not to have any more parties he's not supposed to have. Let's bring let's bring the big guy back in. I don't think so. But I also think that the Tory party at its core is is racist and so you've got these very highly qualified people of South Asian or African origin, mm -hmm. um, highly educated, proven politicians, and they're just never going to get to lead that party because their skin's too brown. Ugh. So I think that, you know, we've got Liz Truss and we have a parade of other mediocre white people behind her. And those are going to be the leaders of the Tory party. I'm not going to challenge that prediction, John. You couldn't get me to bet $5 on it. You're probably right. <laughs> I think we're going to have to leave it there. I want to say thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to our producers and engineers as usual. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>